Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November the 16th, 2017, and this is episode 2114 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Thursday, so it's time for a listener call show. This is where you pick your phone up and you dial 866-65-THINK. 866-65-THINK. You could do that right now, but if you do, you're not going to hear Hi Jack or Hi Caller. This is Jack. What do you have to say? Because it's a podcast, not live radio. But you call in any time that you want to. You leave me your message, and you do it kind of in the format you're going to hear today. Make your point or ask your question up front. Then give me the details. That will do you know the, the most to get you on the air. The other thing to do is call from a quiet location, and please make sure you have some bars on your cell phone if you're using your cell phone. Your other option is you can go to the survivalpodcast.com, scroll down a bit, look in the center column, and you'll see a button for a thing called Speak Pipe, and you can use the Speak Pipe to send a message to me. That is all, that's very intuitive. I mean, I don't have to explain it. When you try it, you'll see how it works, and you'll be able to use it. I promise you, people do it all the time. We actually have about half of the calls, so they come off of Speak Pipe and half from the 800 number. Uh, what are we going to talk about today? Uh, we have a quick comment from a caller on another child of the 3006. I talked about the 3006 recently and how basically there's like the majority of common cartridges used in America today come from the 3006 one way or another until we step into the magnums and ultra magnums and that crap. Um, but there's one I left out. And it's not what you would think it is, and we'll talk about that today. I have a question on uses for an old septic tank. I have some ideas on that. I have understanding a question on understanding global debt to global GDP as a one-to-one -one ratio. Uh, that's not really what the caller means when they call it in. They're just like flabbergasted that that's how it worked out. But we'll talk about why that's the only way that it could be. And there's some of you out there, I know you're like Horshack. If you're old enough to remember who Horshack was, going, ooh, 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 I know, Mr. Kata, Mr. Kata. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty obvious when you think about it. Uh, but it's something most people would never think about. And it, 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 when you don't understand why, you don't understand global economy. You don't understand modern money, modern money mechanics. You don't understand how the money that you think is worth something is created and produced and managed and controlled and expanded and contracted at all. You should immediately be Horshack. Ooh, ooh, I know, I know, right? But most people, like, that's just crazy. Why, why would GDP and debt be one for one globally when it's all over the map, country to country? Ooh, ooh, I'm not going to tell you. Anyway, I will tell you later. I have a question on making a lever action 7.62 by 39. Um, I'll give you some thoughts on why I wouldn't, even though the caller has a good reason to do so, and my two alternatives for him. A question on scoping the 450 Bushmaster in an AR platform. Um, sorry, guys, you're not going to pull me away from Leupold anytime soon. Uh, some of the options they have today are just so fantastic in the price ranges they're in. Uh, a great storage option for two-liter soda bottles. And the concept of property tax on cars in the state of West Virginia. And this does happen other places as well. And I want to talk about, like, this gave me a great opportunity to not get political but talk to you about the current tax bill uh, that's in the House, actually passed the House this morning, and is now off to the Senate, and everybody has an opinion, and everybody's talking about it. And as you might imagine, everybody on both sides is full of shit. Nobody's telling you the truth. I'll use this example to explain the truth to you today. 
All that and more in just a bit. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and take a look at our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. You know, we just had Kat Ellis on yesterday about herbal remedies. Herbs are amazing. They do so many things for us. I really believe for everything in our life that's like a chronic, ongoing thing, there's a better answer in herbs than there is in conventional medicine. I believe that. Now, I I'm agree with Kat, too. She was yesterday like, you know, if she's having a heart attack, take me to the hospital. I agree. If I get a wreck and there's a yield sign in my spleen or something like that, I want to go to the ER. I want to go to a doctor. If I have cancer, you know, I, I actually think there's a lot of things herbs can do to help with that, but I also want to go to, like, Cancer Treatment Centers of America. But when it comes to, like, an aching shoulder, tendonitis, other chronic problems, especially chronic problems that medicine tries to do something about, and fails to do anything about, and just labels something without even really knowing what it is, well, I think herbs and diet are the way to go. And Western Botanicals can help you navigate that world and find the right stuff for your needs, whether it's whole herbs to make your own preparations, whether it's the things that you need to make those preparations, like beeswax and other things, or it's pre-made herbal preparations. You'll find it all at Western Botanicals. And if you're an MSB member, you get a discount uh, membership from them for free for the first year that you have. It's worth 50 bucks, 25% off everything. And they sell it every day for $50 a year, and it pays for itself. But MSB members, you'll get the renewals on it for only 25 bucks. That pays for half your MSB for the rest of your life and for your entire MSB in your first year. And you get great products from real people that really care about you, that really will answer the phone and answer your questions. That's westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, readymaderesources.com. One of the oldest sponsors I have. I think they're in the, like, if I made a list right now, they would be in the top four for oldest. I know Safe Castle would be the oldest of the old. Uh, but they've been with us a daggone long time. They really have. And uh, ready-made resources, I always say they're the company that says what they do and do what they say. Do you know why I say that about them? Not just because it's not just because it's true. Because when I was a marketing consultant, that's what I always told companies to do, and none of them ever really wanted to just be that simple about it. Ready-made resources figured it out on their own. If you do what you say and say what you do, people will trust you and come back to you year after year for business. And that's why so many of my members of this audience have been doing business with Ready-made resources now for over eight years and continue to go back. That's why they're still a sponsor. Check them out today at readymaderesources.com where they have everything you could possibly think of for your prepping needs. From solar and wind, long-term food storage, you name it, they've got it. Readymaderesources.com. And before we get into the uh, calls today, let me remind you, one of the ways you can support this show is simply, simply by becoming a member of the MSB, or Members Support Brigade. Uh, this show is one of the longest-running podcasts on the Internet. I, I, would, I would go out on a limb and say there's probably not 100 podcasts on the Internet that have run for almost 10 years. There's, there's probably 100, but there's probably not much more. I would say as small, independently run podcasts by people that weren't a celebrity when they started, I bet there's not 50. Do you know why? It's not because I'm so good. It's because this audience is so good and has been so good to me and my family and supported me. Without the MSB, that could not happen. It's the reason that we're here every day, five days a week, Monday through Friday, for going into our 10th year as we head into 2018 at the end of this year. Because of you. So let me just say, if you've ever been a member or you are a current member, thank you. 
And if you've let your membership lapse or you've never become a member, please check it out. I promise you, I built something. The reason it's so successful, the reason, I mean, think of all the other people that have tried to make a go of this in, in some similar fashion. The reason this works is when you get the membership and you actually use it, it puts money back in your pocket, and by the end of the year you go, gee, I got over $200 in discounts for stuff I needed, and I paid $50 bucks for that. I think I'll keep it. I mean, that's how you know simple it is. So please consider getting by the survivalpodcast.com today. Click on members to learn more. Remember, you want a discount? You can pay in silver and get a discount any day. You can pay in cryptocurrency and... Uh, Well, if you want a discount for cryptocurrency, I'll do that for the next through Thanksgiving. Email me with crypto TSPC, and I'll tell you what discount you get if you pay with cryptocurrency. And uh, otherwise, it's fifty bucks. And military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders—all of you guys get a discount as well. Email me with TSPC discount in the subject line, and I will get you back information on that. With that, let's go ahead and take the first call of the day. I really like this one because, yeah, I kind of screwed up and missed this. Hey, Jack, just want to leave a comment about the 30-06 and the caller that uh, called in recently about uh, wondering where the name came from. Uh, you forgot the most important thing that came out at 30-06, 50 BMG. I'm sure you know that being an Army guy, but 50 BMG is just a big, giant 30-06 scaled up going to Audus. Uh Something I'm sure that not everyone's aware of, but uh, just I'm not into the uh, ever-going story of the 30-06. Thanks, man. Have a great shoot. Yeah, there's not a whole lot to add to that. Only I, I will tell you that I, I do know that, but I do not know that because I'm an Army guy. Um, I got to shoot the 50 cal in basic. I got to shoot it a few times in my uh, my permanent duty station unit down in Panama. It was an aviation unit. We had 50 cals both for the helicopters, and we had 50 cals for our uh, five-ton trucks. We had these big circular mounts. In fact, I spent an awful lot of a month when we when they came in for the trucks uh, mounting them to the, to the trucks, uh, to the five, M900 series five tons. Uh, not that they were ever used. And it was really kind of pointless because, uh, we were leaving Panama like two years after I did as a country. And uh, all those trucks were going to go somewhere else. And I believe all that shit had to be taken back off of it. It, it. I don't know. It was something, it was make work, something to do. Um, but I mean, we didn't discuss in depth the 50 cal and we never discussed the 3006 when I was in the army. Because I was in the modern army, and of course we had the 7.62, uh, 308, you know, we had the 223, 5.56. Um, so they never told me about that. But as I got into reloading and things like that, and, you know, reading books like, because I'm like a ballistics nerd, I'm actually a guy that actually has read cartridges of the world page for page, one after the other, every single page. I've actually read the entire, not the entire Hornady manual. But, you know, on, on the Hornady 2-edition two, two manual, uh, the one with all of the cartridges, every single cartridge has a backstory. I've read every one of them. I've done the same thing with the Spirit. I, I just like the history of where rounds come from. And I think it just enhances your joy and fun as a shooter. And it's like I don't really need to own some of the guns I have and some of the calibers I do. I, you know, really... Because you know, sometimes I think back and just think of simplifying my life and having a few ARs that are locked up in the safe and they're there for, you know, if they're ever needed. And the wisdom of my, my grandfather and my, my uncles, they all had a deer rifle, a shotgun, a 22 rifle, 
a handgun. Most of them, 45s, 38s were also popular back then, revolvers. Um, and a 22 handgun. That was it. Some of them didn't even have all of that, but mo that was kind of like, it's like, when you got there, you really didn't need anything else. Maybe you had a goose gun, which was like a long barrel, tight choked shotgun. Or maybe you had a, a turkey shotgun if you were a turkey hunter, uh, or a barrel for your, your 870, or a barrel for your 1100. There was a short barrel for turkey hunting. But that was about it. None of these guys, you know, um, had like these, you know, things like we have today where people have like 50 guns, 100 guns, things like that. But one of the reasons I do like having all these calibers is because when I go shoot one, I know about it, where it came from, why it was invented how it became successful or it never became successful in spite of what it's good at. You know, all of those things. So what the caller means when he says it's a scaled-up 3006, I think anybody go, well, isn't a 300 Magnum a scaled-up 3006? No, not in the same way. If you took a JPEG image of a scale, one-to-one -one scale 3006 cartridge and dropped it into a photo editor and grabbed the corner and drug it diagonally and expanded it until the neck of the 50 caliber became, or the neck of the, thir the 30 caliber distance on the neck became 50, it would you know scale and expand evenly, you would end up with a 50 cal BMG. It is a one-to-one -one scale, or like a two-to-one scale replica, or three-to-one, whatever it is. But anyway, all I'm saying is it like it, it directly scales up. There is one difference, and that is if you look at a 306 cartridge, the walls are straight, and then it bends down at the neck. And if you look at a 50-cal cartridge, the walls actually are tapered, and that is just because it's designed to be fired in a machine gun. So they tapered the wall so it would feed better, given it's this big-ass honking cigar-shaped cartridge. But it's a one-for-one -one scaling. In fact, I believe, I don't know if this is true or not, but I believe it's true, that even the brass scales proportionally. So obviously the brass, if you've ever looked at a discharged 50-cal shell, uh, the brass is much thicker for good reasons. But the thickness of the brass scales, that's, that's what Browning did. Browning was, of course, the Browning 50-cal machine gun is where this round came from, 1910, I believe. And that's all they did. They just said, let's just make this 50-caliber. Let's just scale it up. Let's not mess with something that works. It's pretty cool. Anyway, thanks for that call. And uh, thanks for getting me to reminisce again about the simplicity of our forefathers and carrying that one deer rifle, that one shotgun, and those few other things. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Justin from Florida. My question is, is an old concrete septic tank suitable for water catchment? Details, I have a roughly 2,500-gallon concrete septic tank that's been sitting empty for roughly five years I received it from a friend who pulled it out of a mobile home park. And I was curious if that would be good for something like rainwater catchment or for watering the pastures, anything like that. would love to have your thoughts and opinions on it. Thank you. I, I personally can't see why not. I know people go, ew, it's five years, guys. I mean, anything and everything that can break down has broken down. I would give it a good cleaning Uh, especially if you're going to use it for water that's going to be consumed. But especially if you're going to use it for water for, like, irrigation or something, I, I can't see any reason not to. It, it does make me think of something that I, I, I meant to mention on air when I was doing some research recently that I came across. 
uh, I was looking for information on different things people had done for aquaponics. And this will sound even more creepy, except, you know, just keep in mind nothing's ever been in it. Um, I come across a guy in Florida that does, like, small-scale commercial aquaponics. And what he uses for his fish tanks and even some of his grow beds, burial vaults, concrete burial vaults. And I think he said they're around 1,100 gallons in capacity. And he gets them cheap, delivered. This was his caution. When they deliver it, <laughs> make sure you know where you want it. Make sure the area is prepared for it, if you want, you know, leveled and all. Because once they put it down and go away, you ain't moving it unless you have heavy equipment to move it with, uh, which he apparently does not. But, I mean, so the reason I bring that up, that's another option for it. What, what a great fish tank for doing some aquaculture. And concrete's easy to paint. So that would be another option I would look at on it. But if you want to use it as a water catchment tank, that would be great. And, of course, it can handle the pressures of being buried. So if you wanted to make it basically a cistern. Um, I'm not really familiar with septic tanks, though. My understanding is they have baffles and stuff in them. I don't know if that comes out easy. And obviously a septic tank is designed for affluent to go into, to break down and come out of. So I don't know how perfectly they're sealed, so you might need to apply some sealant and to account for the fact that water has, you know, there has to be some place for it to get out uh, at some point to go into your leach field. So, um, again, I've, I have to say I've actually never seen a septic tank pulled out of the ground. So I don't know exactly what you're dealing with. But basically you're dealing with a great big tank made out of concrete. And whatever you want to do with it, I would go ahead and do it, and I wouldn't worry about the fact that it used to be something else because it's just long enough. I mean, even with human manure systems where you use human manure waste and break it down in composting, it's a one-year composting process before you just don't worry anymore. So that's my thoughts. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Chance Lunsford out of Pleasant Grove, Utah. Um, I'm calling back because my last call, I didn't do a very good job of saying what I was trying to say. Uh, I was listening to a podcast about the future of global climate change finance. Um, and like I said before, you can look at that however you want. But the statistic that was quoted by a representative from Citibank was that the total debt of governments from all around the world right now is $73 trillion, and the total GDP is $73 trillion. Uh, and that was the 2016 stat. So... The government literally spent on debt every single penny that is equivalent to the total amount of product produced by the, by the country. So not only are we spending every tax dollar that they steal from us, which you can call that 25%, say, but they're spending the 75 cents extra that is being produced as well. So that just kind of blew my mind. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Thanks, Jack. See ya. Okay, so there should be a whole bunch of Horshacks, right? And if you're too young to know who Horshack was, first of all, your childhood sucked. Uh, and second of all, go look up reruns of Mr. Carter. Uh, Mr. Carter. Uh, a young John Travolta, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, so there should be a bunch of horse shacks going, ooh, ooh, I know, I know, I know. Well, it's, of course, because it almost has to work out that way. And the, and the reason is money is debt, and debt is money. 
And this is why I don't get overly concerned about the national debt anymore, as I've, I've grown to further understand it. I, I want to do something for you to, to help you break um, a mental block that you have. When I say that, like, well, you don't really need to worry that much about debt-to-GDP ratio, that you don't even really need to worry about that much about the United States national debt. It's true that at some point our whole economic system could unwind and, and go crashing to the ground, but it could go crashing to the ground owing $10 trillion, and it could stay together owing $60 trillion. The number itself doesn't really matter because the system is built on debt. Before I try to explain that further, to help you break the mental conditioning that this is bad, this is bad, Let's talk about what debt-to-GDP ratio is, and then give you some countries as some examples. So, a debt-to-GDP ratio of one-to-one -one means exactly what the caller said. The, the countries are, are in debt to the exact amount of production. And they've played some voodoo with GDP to make it higher than it is, because now certain promises are GDP for the year. So when your company promises to pay you in the future on your pension, it goes down as GDP for this year even though it's going to go down as GDP again when they finally pay it, if they pay it. Eh, they're playing some bullshit there. But in the end, it still all works on the giant global balance sheet. Debt-to-GDP is exactly that. If your debt-to-GDP ratio uh, was, let's say, 50%, and you were doing it for your household, that would mean that you earn $100,000 a year and you owe fifty. If you owe $100,000 and you earn $100,000, you have a one-to-one -one GDP ratio. And so you would think the lower that number, the better. And in some cases, yes. I mean, countries like Switzerland, which is, you know, there's things I don't like about Switzerland, but economically, the country's balanced its books pretty good, and they're one of the most stable nations in the world. Their debt-to-GDP ratio is 32. The United States, conversely, has a debt-to-GDP ratio. Hold on, I'm looking it up because I don't want to get it wrong by a point. These are 2016 numbers before anybody flips their shit on me because 2016 is a closed fiscal year and it's got a conclusive number, 106.1, 106% GDP. Uh, it's actually considered pretty good. 100, anything that's not much past that one-to-one -one is considered pretty good, pretty stable. Uh, the highest country in the world with debt-to-GDP right now is Japan. All right, keep that in mind. What I want to do is I want to go to see so the bottom of the list. Well, that must be the countries we want to emulate and be like, right? I mean, if a country has a GDP of three, they only owe 3% of their gross domestic product. They're doing things right. You'd want to be like them. So you want to be like Brunei? Brunei has the lowest GDP. I'm going to read for you the countries with the 20 lowest GDPs, and they range starting at 3%. And if my computer will stop acting up on me, it goes up to 21. So they are Brunei. Going for, this is like what you would think is of the best, so the bottom of the list up. Brunei, Afghanistan, Swaziland, Estonia. That one's not so bad. But Uzbekistan, Saudi Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia Kosovo, Burundi, Cuba, Libya, the Cayman Islands. Again, not so bad. Russia. Russia doesn't look so bad compared to some of these other ones, does it? Palestine, Nigeria, Kuwait, UAE, Luxembourg, not so bad, Maldives, Algeria, Kazakhstan. 
Okay, just I want you to think in your head of those 20 countries, how many of them, if you had to, could you be happy living in them? You know, I, I don't want to leave the United States. I still think it's the best opportunity in the world for the individual. But, you know, there's a couple of them there that I could live in. Let me give you the 20 countries with the highest debt to GDP ratio. And you tell me how many of these countries you could see yourself living in if you had to and being relatively happy. Japan, Greece, Lebanon, Italy, Cape Verde, Portugal, Jamaica, Mozambique. I don't want to live there. Um, in fact, you know what? I don't want to live there at all. Bhutan, Singapore, Cyprus, the United States, Belgium, Spain, France, Jordan, Canada, Egypt, and the United Kingdom. Now, I think the takeaway is there's nations in both of those lists that are pretty decent, pretty stable, economically, pretty developed. And there's nations in both of those lists that would be pretty shitty places to live. But there's no doubt which one has a better ring to it as a total. Like if you were making a mutual fund and you were going to invest in countries, would you rather invest in a mutual fund made up of companies that were in Japan, Greece, Lebanon, Italy, Cape Verde, Portugal, Jamaica, Mozambique, Bhutan, Singapore, Cyprus, the United States, Belgium, Spain, France, Jordan, Canada, Egypt, and the United Kingdom, or would you rather make up a mutual fund of country of companies that were based in the following nations? Let me read it again real fast. Brunei, Afghanistan, Swaziland, Estonia, Uzbekistan, Saudi Arabia, Kosovo, Burundi, Cuba, Libya, Cayman Islands, Russia, Palestine, Nigeria, um, Kuwait, UAE, Luxembourg, Maldives, Algeria, Kazakhstan. Again, you're thinking some of those nations have some good economic outlooks. Like Russia is actually not a bad place to be invested in right now. That's the whole Russia, Russia, Russia. Of course these people want to be invested in Russia. On both sides of the aisle, there's some real developing markets in Russia. They have oil, too, which for now is worth a lot of money. But Burundi, Kosovo, Uzbekistan, Swaziland, Afghanistan, unless you're in the opium business, Brunei, Nigeria. See, here's what this is. If you go back into the 80s and 90s, there were a lot of companies out there. I'm sure they're still around, but it was a mixture of different things. Network marketing companies would be one example. But the other were a lot of direct sales companies that were advertising in the newspapers when people read newspapers for, like, jobs. And they would say, a 20-year-old debt-free company or, you know, a cutting-edge debt-free company. Sometimes companies are debt-free not because they're so well-run, but because nobody will loan them any money. So sometimes the reason a country has a really low debt-to-GDP ratio is no one will give them any money. And sometimes when they have a real high one, it's because they can afford to and because they print money by borrowing it, which is the ooh-ooh-ooh Mr. Kater. The reason globally we have a one-to-one debt-to-GDP ratio across the globe is we pretty much have to. The way the modern economy works, every dollar is lent into existence So for a dollar to exist and move through an economy, at one place or another it had to be lent, and a cycle has to be created of debt and repayment. And if we go to a point where it's a hundred gazillion, 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 gazillion dollars, and Dr. Evil voice that I can't do, um, 
that will be about where we will end up with a one-to-one debt-to-GDP ratio, as long as the whole system doesn't break. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is the system is rigged, but that's the system that we have. So we play within the system, by the system's rules, as best we can to our own advantage, and we stop worrying about big numbers. And you're going to hear some things later about the tax plan. They're going to be hard to believe, but I assure you they're all based on real numbers and facts and math, and so is this. Anyway, thanks for that call. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. First, I want to say thank you for the great show. You help us a lot um, and encourage all the listeners to become members of the TSP. Anyway, uh, I want to ask, I'm trying to uh, make a 762 by 39 lever action rifle. Why you say? Well, I live in Canada, Jack, and frankly, 762 by 39 is the cheapest option. Now, I have a 762 by 39 bolt gun, but um, I know that upcoming is going to be laws that restrict us from having semi-autos, and lever actions are faster than bolt guns. So I've been thinking about a Savage 99 in either 300 Savage or 308, and I'm wondering what would be the best option for converting that to 7.62 by 3.9. Love to hear your comments. Thanks, and have a good day. Okay, so I I can recognize the utility uh, as far as having cheap, affordable large volume of ammunition available. Um, and, and I can recognize kind of the appeal of a AK round and a lever gun. I, I kind of can. I can also understand why you gravitate to the Savage 99 because it's one of the very few lever actions that basically has a box magazine versus a tubular magazine. And therefore, we can put pointed cartridges in it without the danger of like one recoiling into the primer of another and kaboom, boom, 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 right? So I, I get that. However, I, I am going to recommend against it. Uh, to me, it just doesn't make sense. The only way for this to work, and you're still going to have issues with feeding and things like that and bolt face size and all, but... The only way this is going to work is to basically have a custom-made barrel made for the gun by a custom shopsmith and then install it back onto the gun. There's no way that I can see that you can change the chamber dimensions of, let's say, they did make the 99 and a 308, if I'm not mistaken, so there's your 30 cal. Um, but you've got a much larger chamber. And I, I just I, I just don't see this working. So I have a, a few suggestions. One is there are some AK-47 variants out there that are pumps. They look like an AK-47, but they're a pump. If you insist on having a non-semi-auto but somewhat rapid-fire capable um, 7.62 by 39 I don't know that anybody's still making them, but I do know they're out there and they can be found and in the range of between like $300 and $500. I promise you the work you're going to put into this gun is going to be more than three dollars to $500 to have something that will be unique, that's for sure, but I think even if you get it done, it won't be wonderful. It won't be perfect. It won't be that accurate. It won't be... Uh, it will never feed that greatly and, and be jam-free and things like that. I just, 
I just don't think that makes sense. So, a couple options I have for you. Go find a Savage 99 in 308. And make that your rifle. But the rounds are more expensive. So go spend about 140, 150 bucks and get the Lee Challenger kit, a set of Lee dies for a uh, .308, and uh, the, the full Monty of dies where you have the full case length size or the neck only size or the crimp die, the all of it. That's like 43 bucks. Uh, go ahead and get the uh, gauge holder for trimming the cases manually by hand. Uh, to go with that for 308, and again that um, that Challenger kit used to be called the Anniversary Kit. Now it's called the Challenger Kit. What they did is they took away the copy of Modern Reloading by Richard Lee. You have to buy that separately now, and that's why they stopped calling it the Anniversary Kit and started calling it the Challenger Kit. I'd get a copy of Modern Reloading by Richard Lee if I was going to get into reloading. It'd be the first book that I would read. It does the best job of explaining the reloading process in a way that makes sense, that will translate to any other equipment you ever use. Um, there is some bias toward his own equipment, but one can expect that from someone who built the company. It's an outstanding book. It explains the process perfectly, where even if you've never reloaded a cartridge in your life, if you read it, take the equipment and do it in a day or two, week tops, you will be producing reloaded ammunition. <clears throat> there is no way you're buying 762 by 39 ammo for less than the cost of reloading 308. And now you have reloading equipment, and now you can reload other cartridges. Whereas if you spend all of this money on this gun to convert it, then all that you've ended up with is one thing that can do one thing and not do it that great. Another option, which would be actually less expensive in reloading, less expensive in getting the gun because those 99s are getting harder to find, um, open the ability to go buy a brand new gun, would be to buy a lever gun in 30-30, which has superior ballistics to the 762 by 39 except for the fact that you know it doesn't use a Spitzer round. So it might have a little bit more downrange holding because of a better ballistic coefficient. But in the end, a 30-30 is a much better round for all things that you would use a rifle round for than the 7.62, other than for a short-cased semi-auto round, which is now off the table for you. And then I would say do the exact same thing, except go get the 30-30 uh, dies when you get the Challenger kit and get the 30-30 gauge holder and the book by Richard Lee. Do both. And you could probably go buy a Savage 99 in 308 or 243 or any of the other great calibers that it comes in. The reloading kit, the dice for the Savage 99, and probably a really nice used 3030 or 35 Remington, Marlin, something like that, like a 336 or 336C, uh, and the dice for it. And enough bullets for reloading for the next five years enough cases for reloading for the next five years, enough primers for reloading for the next five years, enough powder for reloading for the next five years for both of them, for less than the cost of getting this conversion done, if it's even doable. Because, I, again, I do not believe you're going to be able to, you know, machine back into the chamber. I really think you're going to have to... It's, it's possible, but it's probably not good and probably not something a Smith is going to want to do. They're not going to want to be held liable for the rest of their life for that work, right? 
I don't see it working with a ch any kind of chamber adapter. Um, that's fine for a single shot, that, but for repeatability, I just I, I I think either I think reloading if you if the, because see what you have to do is you have to say well what is the what is the actual problem? The problem isn't the lack of a repeater for 7.62 by 39. The problem for you is cost of ammunition. At least that's what you said. Now, I will say, if this is just like a gun nerd thing you want to do, by all means proceed. Figure out how to do it, get it done, and show me I'm wrong. If you're using cost of ammunition as an excuse for your gun nerd thing, that's fine if you're explaining it to your wife that way. But for yourself, be honest that that's what you're doing. Because if it's a cost issue here, there's no way you don't win by reloading because you get the skill, you get the versatility of doing other rounds. My other thing is, if semi-autos are legal right now, I'd go get one while they're legal. Because a lot of times, even oppressive governments like the Canucks will tend to grandfather existing things when they pass new laws. Not always, but sometimes. Just saying. Uh, I guess you're taking a risk where there's no buyback or anything, or they pay you a dime on the dollar and they make you turn it in. I, I guess that could happen. But, I mean, if it was me and I was already in this situation, I wanted a repeating round in a lever action I would take up reloading before I try to retrofit something to 7.62. Anyway, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Jacob here in Michigan. Looking at putting together a 450 Bushmaster upper for one of my ARs and just trying to decide what to go with for a scope. Curious on what your recommendations are for a good scope for Michigan dealing with sometimes open field, sometimes still fields of corn, a little bit of brush and woods, but mostly open terrain, zero, or 50 to 250-yard shot. Thanks for all you do. So I'm going to go back to the mid-price loopholes because I think they are quality-to-value ratio, the best thing on the market right now. I really do. Uh, but it will be a new scope. It won't be, you know, get the VX2, 3 to 7. It won't be the same one you've heard about. I actually have a much better scope recommendation for you. Let's talk about why I came to it before I tell you what it is. When you tell me Michigan, cornfields, woods, 50 to 250 yards, I think about it like I do down here. When I, when I say myself, you know, my shots are going to be between 50 and 350 to 400 yards. I may someday take a 400-yard shot in the state of Texas. We have some really open areas. I've been to a lot of places where I can see 400 or 500 yards. The furthest I've shot at deer at in the state of Texas so far was 257 yards. And that's a pretty long shot. I know there's a lot of guys, I can shoot 500 yards. Yeah, I can too. But I tend to take a little bit different view when, when I pull the trigger there's a living being entity at the other end of it that I will feel like dog shit if I happen to pop it through its guts and it runs away in the woods and is wasted and dies in a slow, miserable death. So when I'm taking a, a 300, 400-yard shot, it has to be optimum. So I build my guns to the average shot, which is 50 to 200 yards. I mean, just flat out. That's my average shot. Everywhere I've been... It's 50 to 200 yards. I personally think for you that 250 yards is a lot like my 400 yards. It could happen, but I know the country you're hunting. It's woods, and unless you have private land or something like that, 
As soon as all the yahoos go into the woods and start hunting, the deer know they're being hunted, and they don't hang out in fields very much anymore. So unless you have private land where the deer are really not molested, you don't. it's not that it can't happen, and you do want the capability to reach out that far if necessary. So now I'm going to say the other side of this. Shooting with open sights in an AR in the United States military when I was 19 years old, uh, I routinely... Uh, took shots at 300 yards of half man-sized targets with iron sights. Hence, 400 yards magnification, I'm sorry, 250 yards magnification 4X is sufficient, if you are. And I would rather have you have a low magnification scope with a good field of view, like a one and a half power, for the wood shots, because I actually think you're more likely to take a 25-yard shot than a 200-yard shot. Your woods are a lot like the woods I grew up in Pennsylvania. My longest shot in Pennsylvania was right at 100 yards. It was at a running deer, and it was only because I was following that deer in my scope while my uncle was going, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, and I waited, and it, that deer happened to straighten out, and its butthole hit the crosshairs, and like the computer went off and bang, and I shot a raking shot through its basically its right ass cheek that came out its left ear. Um, and, and that's the aberration. That's the aberration. Um, I shot another one running very similar to that one at about like 60 yards. But my average shot in Pennsylvania with a rifle was probably under 30 yards. And a lot of those shots were running or moving game. Low magnification and or iron sights or flip mounts, which are hard to find anymore apparently, are really suitable to those environments. So the scope I've selected to recommend for you is a Loophole Mark II, uh, I'm sorry, a Loophole Mark AR uh, in 1.5 by 4. And uh, I, if it was my gun, if I was building a 450 Bushmaster upper and I was going to bush hunt with it, this is the scope I would put on my old, own gun. It's not an inexpensive scope, but... You know, I, when I hear you're building an upper in 450 Bushmaster, I'm thinking you're not going super cheap here. So this is like under 300 bucks, $272 on Amazon. I have a link to it, so you can see it there. If you can find it for less elsewhere, go ahead and do that. Um, but I, I think it's, like again, if I was doing this myself, this is the scope that I would put on my gun. I hate seeing ARs. With big scopes on them. It ruins everything that's wonderful about using the AR as a sporting gun platform. It ruins everything. When you look at the way they're built and what the, what the AR platform was for. To be carried by light infantry through jungle, through desert, wherever it had to go. And be a lightweight, fast handling gun with long range capabilities in spite of that. When you put anything big on it, it just ruins it. Now, look, if you want to slick your gun up for three gun or something like that or tack it out so that, you know, you, you got it set up for a CQB or whatever, I get it. But that's not what the AR platform was originally designed to be. We, in, our, in our world of modularity, we actually made it work really good. I'm, again, I'm not putting it down. But for the troop in the field, the more weight, the worst. And I think that's the same for the hunter. Fast handling, fast follow-up shots, 
for a sledgehammer of a round, relatively low recoil, especially an AR platform. That one and a half um, power is where I would keep it most of the time. Because when you jump that buck 25 yards away, it's, it's on par with side acquisition of like a red dot. But yet we can dial that thing up because we are talking about a round that is a good 200, 250-yard round. It really is. It will knock the snot out of a whitetail 250 yards. The trajectory is such that it totally will work out to that range. It's not like trying to lob a 45-70 out there or something, which will certainly do the job, but it's quite rainbow-like at that range. We're talking, I think, with a 200-yard zero, we're talking like four or five inches of drop, if I remember the ballistics table I looked at this morning. Yeah, doable. But I would build the gun to short, fast action in the bush because you, you and I both know that's why you're doing it. You're, you're, you're being a guy. Well, I could be a 250-yard shot someday. But you know, like if that's what you wanted then you'd have an AR-10 with a 308, right? I mean, that's what you would do. Like if, that, if that was your normal thing, you know exactly why you're doing what you're doing. you got big, heavy-bodied deer that can go a long way with a 30 caliber round in them, especially if it's like a 30-30. It, it, the size of deer, guys, where this, if you're not from the north, these deer, I, I've seen whitetails 300 pounds on the hoof. It's a big animal. And it's another, you're probably hunting public land. And I've seen it happen. Guy shoots a deer, deer takes off, deer goes 150 yards. He's going to die anyway. He's got to hold through both sides of him. But, you know, he's hit a little far back or he's hard shot. Hard shot deer run way further than a long shot deer do, by the way. And, you know, it gets down around a corner. And there's so many yahoos in the woods. You hear, bang! And another guy claims it's his deer. When you slug him with a 450. <laughs> In a high, high behind shoulder shot, they go down. You don't deal with that. And when they're running, you have that quick follow up. So that's, this is the scope I would use. There's a link in today's show notes. Couple additions. Um, number one, the uh, scope is specifically designed for the 5.56 AR. That's what it's for, which is why I think it works great for this application. It, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It's uh, set to a one-click equals .1 mil at 100 meters. That's going to be the same no matter what you're firing through it. And it's not like it has a uh, a drop rectangle with, like, you know, it's where it's pre-calibrated to 100 yards, 200 yards, 300. It's not like that. It's a standard duplex rectangle. So it doesn't really matter. The other thing is going back to the last question before we move on. I, I realized I forgot. When I was talking about the uh, the anniversary or the the uh, now it's called the Challenger kit for Lee reloading and the dies and all, and I mentioned the book Modern Reloading, I put a link to it on Amazon so you can see exactly what I'm talking about. I would not buy that book on Amazon. It's available from Cabela's for like 18 bucks and it's like 30 dollars on uh, Amazon. Now if the sh free shipping helps you or whatever, maybe check eBay, check other sources. There's a lot of used copies of that out there, and also I believe it's worth owning both the the modern copy. And the old copy that's the red, the book's all red. And uh, that edition has some load data in it that's really cool, that's older load data that's still valid, that's not in the newer edition. So if you find a cheap copy of the old red one that's, like, I think, last time it was printed was 96, I would go ahead and pick that up because, you know, these things like H414 powder have not changed in how that load data works with them. And some of the very uh, low-side loads in there, are uh, pretty useful, especially in the world of uh, like hard cast lead 
uh, when you're playing around with things like 38 Special and 44 Special loads in 357 Magnum and 44 Magnum rifles. So just wanted to add that addition. Now let's take the next call. Hey, Jack Ramon here. I just had a comment about storing two-liter water bottles of water. Uh, you've been preaching that for a while, and I just figured out an easy way to store it. I was driving by a local stop and rob the other day, and they had uh, the cases, that the plastic carrying cases that you know distributors use that hold six two-liter uh, soda bottles in there. And they were just sitting out by the dumpster. You know, a lot of times, I guess they return them to the distributors and put them in the back of their store or whatever, but these ones were sitting out by the dumpster. So I just went in and asked uh, if they were throwing them away, if I could have them. And uh, the guy said, yeah, he said, take them. So I took a bunch of them and I, I see them there all the time. Uh, so, I mean, even if they're at the back of the store, it's, it's worth stopping in and asking and seeing if they're, if they're willing to depart with them. Uh, but I mean, it makes it great for storing uh, those two liter soda bottles. Uh, you can stack them up on top of each other. I mean, that's what they're made for. Uh, it just makes it a lot easier. All right. Thought I'd give a, give a little advice. Uh, take care. You know, I, I've, I've eyeballed those things like a hundred million times. Like every time at a store and I see them, I'm like, that would be great. I wonder, and I always thought, you know, they're, they're such a durable good that surely this is something that's recycled. They're not thrown away, but apparently they are. Uh, and then the reason I've never even pursued to find out is none of my suppliers of, uh, of icky gick bottles, I guess is what I would call them. Uh, supply me with two liter bottles. I usually end up with either Arizona iced tea bottles or like the apple juice type bottles. Uh, primarily because I use the apple juice bottles myself to, uh, to make cider. And, and now that my father-in-law's passed away, my source of Arizona iced tea bottles is even gone. So when I've had someone provide me with bottles for water storage, it's not been the two liters. Uh, but that is probably the most common and they are fantastic for water storage because of how durable that they are. And uh, so I would say if you're using them, definitely like when you're in a store, ask and keep an eye out when you see the, you know, the big Pepsi truck or the Coke truck or whatever, and just ask the vendors. A lot of times they'll have some, you know, what I've learned with vendors, I, again, I don't know about this product in particular, but a lot of times they'll have stuff that's like, it's a little bit damaged, but it still works and they'll just give it to you. I found that a lot with like flower pots and flower pot holders and stuff like that. You know, there's a little crack here and a crack there and like, yeah, we're going to get rid of all this. You want it here? Um, so, uh, good, good suggestion. Thanks for letting us know. And yeah, you're right. I mean, it's what they're made to do. So they obviously do it well. Uh, let's take another call. Jack, this is Jerry in West Virginia. I got an issue with taxation. It actually affects me quite a bit. I would like to buy a new vehicle and several other things And the state of West Virginia levies such taxes consistently Every year you pay taxes on these on these pieces of property along with your home. And I refuse to pay the tax on a new vehicle and limit myself to buying older vehicles. And it's starting to really be an issue because locally older vehicles that have any value, um, you know, trustability, reliability are getting to be very, very much harder to find. And they keep changing the year where they levy these large taxes on them to older and older dates. As it is right now, I have to buy a vehicle that is made before 97, before it is no longer considered a viable, uh, taxable entity. 
how do you deal with these purchase ideas? Um, I just can't deal with taxes and giving them more money to steal out of my paycheck. Thanks for all you do, brother. Jerry in West Virginia. You know, the more I learn about West Virginia, the less I like it. And, and that's sad to me because they have some incredible property uh, prices in West Virginia, and I'm beginning to see why. And some beautiful mountains and some beautiful land, and it's, it's a wonderful place as far as the place itself. But they are one of the most onerous states that I know of when it comes to <clears throat> taxing its people. And from what I can see, they don't give a lot back. There seems to be a... a All governments seem to take a lot of money from a lot of people and do very little in return for it. But when it comes to shitty level of return, ROI in West Virginia seems to be way up there for what they take. Um, I'm not exactly sure what's going on here. I, I tried to research this and find this you know, annual cost of a, a pro basically you're describing as a property tax on a car. And all I can find is a 6% sales tax on the car. And... I'm thinking in my head, surely if I buy a car for $20,000 and they charge me $1,200 in taxes on it the year that I buy it, next year they don't charge me another $1,200 on it, do they? Do they? Is that what you're saying, dude? I, I, I don't know. Um, or is there a separate tax I have yet to find? Because I was I found like a $51 annual registration fee or something like that, which you know you don't like paying it, but it's, it's cost of driving a vehicle. Is there a separate rate? Is there a property tax rate on vehicles newer than 1997, I think was what you said? And if so, what is it? I, I, I don't know. What, 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 I, what would I do about it? The, the more I hear about West Virginia, the more I think I would leave. Um, I thought maybe leasing a vehicle would be a way to go, but they're going to assess the tax on your payment. But at least then it's apportioned to your expenditure, So if I was going to own a new vehicle in West Virginia, I'd be looking real hard at leasing. Really hard at leasing. And I would be looking at getting that sweet lease deal. Um, I've mentioned before, but I got my son into a Nissan Altima. Brand new Altima, three-year lease, uh, $1,200 down, $129 a month. At the third, month 36, you can turn it in and get a new one, or you can give them $500 and walk away. That's uh, pretty cheap to drive a brand new vehicle with nothing to think about other than putting gas in it and doing oil changes. Uh, that's with a 12,000 mile allowance on it. And if we had done, you know, 15, it would have probably been $149. And so, yeah, you're going to pay tax on that, but what's the tax? You know, what's the tax on, on that payment? Now, do they tax you on the value of the total lease and then tax you again on the payments? You see what I'm saying? I mean, I, I don't know. The only thing I ever ran into like this, and it was one of the many reasons we leased our equipment when we had our office in Fort Worth for underground construction with directional boring, is the city of Fort Worth assesses a property tax on construction equipment. A property tax on construction equipment, yeah, a city tax. And it's significant. It's like 1%. You're talking about quarter-million-dollar machines. So it's significant, especially if you have a company running 13 of them. So we leased it, and they tried to actually tax us on it. And we pushed back, and under our law in the, in the city of Fort Worth, we were able to successfully push that back. And I wondered how many of my competitors just paid it. 
because the city sent them a bill, so they just paid it. So I, I don't know. But I think this actually, like, what would I do if I was in West Virginia right now? I'd be looking to move. I hate saying that, but I would. Um, I mean, this is worse in every way that I can think of than Pennsylvania. I, I, and that's not exactly great. I mean, I'd be looking uh, southwest toward Tennessee if I was in West Virginia right now. I really would. I, I mean, I, I'm fed up with it. They seem pretty good at making sure that they close what they always call loopholes, which means basically make sure the law is so onerous you can't get around it. Um, they always use loophole like it's something for rich people. You know, a loophole's for anybody that can figure out how it works. Like with raw milk in West Virginia, you know, I, like a lot of states, well, you, you can't do raw milk, but you can do a cow share. So that way people legitimately say, look, it's our cow. We, we can drink milk from our own cow, so piss off. They outlawed cow shares in West Virginia. You can sell raw milk for pet food. And if somebody wants to eat pet food, that's their choice, not West Virginia. I mean, they make sure they clamp down on everything. They're one of the most onerous governments I've ever seen. And it's because the people of – and I know I'm going to piss some West Virginians off right now, but it's because the average citizen of West Virginia has been more conditioned than most to depend on government. And if you look at the, the, the dependency rates, government assistance rates in West Virginia, you'll see why. You'll see why. And it's a lot like Pennsylvania, too, even before the modern day when we have all these people on, like, long-term assistance of one kind or another. You know, Pennsylvania was a blue-collar place where people got laid off all the time. And you might get laid off for three months in winter if you were on a construction job. So you got unemployment for three months, you went back to work. That was the 70s, the 80s. That's how it was. 60s, 70s, and 80s. Were just, it was a matter of fact. Like, I actually looked forward to it. They'd get laid off for most of hunting season. You know, to get their, their small government check, and they would save their money because they knew it was coming. And then they would go back to work like in March. And something happens to a people when they live like that. They start to see government as good. If you look at the, the states that have gone really, really Democrat hard in the North, they're all states that had that pattern, a cycle of, of, of dependence and interdependence on government systems, which made people condition to believe those government systems weren't so bad after all. So I don't have a good answer for you, Jerry. I would like you to follow up with me, email or call, but probably email's better on this one. And, and show me exactly what West Virginia is doing so I can see if I can, there's anything I can work for you. But what this gives me an opportunity to do is talk about something I've wanted to talk about, uh, this, this Republican tax bill and what's really going on. And some of the big objections and all the crying and gnashing of teeth and the poor people in New Jersey and in New York and California and Illinois, and it's not fair to them, and I guess West Virginia too. So... In this bill, a lot of local tax deductions are being eliminated. For instance, we save every receipt from everything that we buy, and we have a, a spreadsheet that Dorothy goes through a couple times a year and catches up with and enters every penny in sales tax we pay because we're able to deduct sales tax, which is quite high in Texas, 8.25% in most areas. Some places a little lower, some a little higher. But, you know, combined state, local, and county is average 8.5% or 8.25% across the board. So if you spend a lot of money, that adds up. And right now, we're able to put that in as an item, and we deduct that from our income and our adjust, adjusted gross income. And the way that deduction works right now, you can either deduct your state income tax or your state sales tax, whichever one's greater if you're smart. 
or you can take a safe harbor deduction, which basically means uh, in your state, the average person pays about this much of sales tax. With no record, you can just declare that. Well, under this new bill, they, 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 I don't know what, what they've passed, if that's actually been taken out or not. But they're talking about taking that away and some other local deductions, including property taxes. So another deduction that I take is property tax. So I pay quite a bit in property tax. That comes off and, and you know lowers my AGI, or adjusted gross income, which reduces my overall tax to the federal government. Now, what we're supposed to be getting out of this is an extreme growth of the United States because we're going to cut corporate taxes from 35% to 25%. First thing you have to understand is corporate taxes are not 35%. Um, corporate taxes can be as low as 20% and as high as 39%. It's wonky. I don't want to go into it. You'll get bored. You'll snore. You'll get tired. But it's like up to the certain first amount of income and then the next block of income and then the next block of income and then it maxes out. Then over a certain amount, it drops back down to 35. And they use 35 as an average because it's pretty close for large corporations. So by cutting the corporate tax rate from 35% to 25%, the United States will become a much better place for companies to do business and corporations will expand and put that money to work. And new companies will come do business here that otherwise hadn't because they've been going to countries with lower tax rates like Ireland and Georgia, Georgia the country, not the state. And, and that's the story. Well, that would be true if there were two things going on here that aren't. Number one, this corporate tax cut is not a tax cut for the rich because they're already not paying taxes, which I'll show you concretely in a second but also because cutting taxes for corporations is not a tax cut for anybody but the corporation itself. The owner of the corporation or the shareholder in the corporation receives a dividend after the income is posted and after it's, it, you know, taxes are paid on it. That's why it's double taxed. So it might up that a little bit, which will up like your Aunt Edna who's on uh, fixed income that's holding Exxon stock, would up hers too, by the way, just saying, because most people retired in America today are holding dividend-paying stocks. So if it did help there, it would help there, but it won't help much. You'll understand why in a second. But the real reason is that the majority of, co of companies in America today are small businesses. And you keep hearing the talking heads on Fox News, F-A-U-X, Fox News, say, It's a tax cut for the middle class, and it's a tax cut for small businesses. Small businesses, small businesses. The vast majority of small businesses in America today are either S-Corps or LLCs, and the income is taxed as pass-through income. This tax plan will not help those companies one bit, period, the end, infinity. If I have a company, let's call it Jack Co. LLC, and that company makes a half a million dollars this year in profit, that income passes through to me and I pay tax on it as personal income tax. I don't pay a penny of corporate income tax on it. Not one penny. Did you know that? Now, this sucks because I'm going to pay the maximum individual tax rate of 39.5% on that kind of income. So you can see that if I'm Jack Co. LLC with like 20 employees, This new corporate tax rate that drops to 25% doesn't help me. Also, the vast majority of small businesses don't make enough money to get into the 35% tax bracket of the big corporation tax rate anyway. So it doesn't help them either, even if you are a C-Corp. I know some small businesses that are C-Corps, and those C-Corps you know, do have a income tax that they pay at the corporate level. 
because it is kind of a pain in the ass to have to pay pass-through income on income that you didn't actually take out of the company. It makes it easier as an owner-operator to just have the company pay its taxes than to have it affect your personal income tax. That's why people that are maybe would be better off in some ways with an LLC choose a C-Corp. But C-Corps, large corporations that pay corporate taxes in the United States, um, are generally big companies, multi-million dollar companies, companies that are going to have many shareholders, whether private, uh, over-the-counter uh, stock, or being a big board uh, like the Dow Jones or S&P 500 uh, traded company. That's the big companies. And, of course, you're going to think, well, you know, at 35%, those corporations, they are paying more than their fair share. Especially if you're a good conservative or libertarian or ANCAP or, you know, voluntarist, you would, if you didn't look at numbers, pay attention, you would think, you know, at 35%, even though we know a lot of people are getting away with a lot of bullshit, the corporate taxes, they must be a pretty big thing in America. That there's no way that this won't help us overall and spur growth of the economy. This is from 2016 taxes. I'd like to read this to you. This is from thebalance.com. It's directly from the federal government's balance sheet. It's incontrovertible. You cannot change it. You cannot challenge it. You cannot explain it away. I'm going to read one paragraph to you, and everything should make sense about this. In 2016, the federal government received $3.276 trillion in fiscal year 2016. That's lower than the president's budget estimate of $3.545 trillion. Income taxes contributed 47%. Payroll taxes, that's SSI, Social Security, was 34%. And corporate taxes were 9%. The remaining 10% came from excise taxes, estate taxes, interest on the Federal Reserve deposits, and other miscellaneous sources. In case you didn't get it, in 2016, the government collected $3.2. $276 trillion. Income taxes contributed. Income taxes, personal income. Me and you. Capital gains and direct income. Uh, people paid 47%. Payroll taxes, Social Security, and your company did match that. So that does fall on the corporations as well as small business owners. It's 34%. You can divide that up to about 17% to the companies and 17% to the individuals, except for self-employed who paid the full burden themselves, people like me. All right? And corporate taxes were 9%. Do you get it? Do you get why it's all bullshit? Cutting the corporate tax rate in America won't do the square root of F all. Now, they start talking about closing loopholes. Well, I, I want you to do something for me. I want you to go look at what General Electric's earnings were. I'm not going to give you the numbers. If you care, you'll do it yourself for the last 10 years and what they paid in taxes over those 10 years. And then I want you to figure out why they paid so little in taxes. It's not because they offshored their money. It's not because they got a special tax rate. It's because they got special tax deals that were specific to General Electric. And you can go through the largest corporations in America one by one, and you will find that almost all of them 
pay no taxes, including on the money and revenues held within the United States. Because they employ lobbyists for a few million that save them a few billion, and that's good business. And when you take it across the board, again, corporations in America, the most prosperous nation in the world, the most prosperous nation that's ever even been dreamed of, corporations are paying 9% of government revenues. Now, I know you're thinking, Jack, you're supposed to be a good anarchist, and you think that all taxes theft. I do. But if you're going to tell me you're cutting corporate taxes and it's going to be some huge boom to the economy, then you got to show me that it's a significant burden on corporations to begin with. And it's not. Now, it may help. I'll tell you how it could help. Uh, you have to be here and be big and have the ability to make that special deal to be paying 9% of the total burden. And new companies that come in that are C-Corp size, that don't have a lobbying presence or anything yet, they get smacked in the face 35%. So it may spur some growth. The big thing that will actually help the economy domestically is the repatriation agreement to let companies like Apple bring home $80 billion. Right now, Apple has about $80 billion in China. I promise you they don't want it there. But it will cost them a 39% repatriation for you to bring it home. And what they want to do in this plan, and I think it's in the, the, the one that passed the House and now goes to the Senate, is make it like 5%. Like there's a window. Bring your money home within X amount of time and only pay 5% on it. It will bring trillions when you add it up back into the U.S. economy. That will help spur the economy. And they'll say it's lower cor corporate tax rates, but it'll be repatriation of dollars. But here's the big thing. And this is how it relates to Jerry's call. The poor people in Illinois, the poor people in New York, the poor people in California, and the congressman said, my people in New York are taxed high enough. This isn't fair. It will gut the middle class in New York, blah, 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 blah. Hold on a second. Where's the real problem there? Is the real problem that the evil federal government is taking away a deduction that's only about 20 years old? Or is it that New York and Illinois and California have used that deduction as cover to constantly raise their own local taxes and make people feel better about it because they got to take it as a deduction? See, I think if you're a congressman from New York or California or... Illinois or one of these other high-tax states, instead of bitching about the federal tax taking away a deduction, you should be going to your own state and go, why are you taxing my people out the balls? And this is an example of why, even though I hate the whole thing, I'm actually for this. Because it, it, it increases, and you've got to understand the meaning of the word I'm about to use has nothing to do with a party. It increases republicanism. See, this is a republic with member states. And I think by eliminating these local deductions, you make people in their own states, including my own, see how heavily taxed that they really are by their own states. Because it's not like it's a one-for-one -one deduction. I think a lot of people will confuse what deductions means. So let's say that I paid $5,000 in property taxes last year. Well, it's not like, well, Jack, you did owe the government uh, $40,000 in income tax, but now you owe them $35,000. It reduces my adjusted gross. So that $5,000 deduction might save me two grand. 
but now it only cost me, th- you know, three grand. It didn't really cost me five in my head. That's how you think about it, especially when you're paying twelve or twenty thousand dollars a year in property taxes. I had a good friend in New Jersey. They finally moved. They couldn't take it anymore. They were paying sixteen thousand five hundred a year, and this is over ten years ago. And property taxes on a four bedroom house on a half an acre. Nice house, not that nice. Sixteen grand property taxes, but they got to deduct it from their federal income tax. And for a lot of people, when you added up the state tax and the property tax and the mortgage interest deduction on a very expensive home, they pay almost no federal income tax, even though they're taxed out the ass. The majority of their taxes get paid to their state. So basically, what you see here is not an argument. Between the good people of the state government trying to protect their residents from the evil federal government, it's two thieves, the state lowercase and the state uppercase, like two seagulls fighting over a French fry rolling down the beach that they both know damn well was stolen off of your plate, and both claiming that the little piece that falls off their beak that they give back to you. Is the part that you deserve to have when they're the thieves. That's what's going on right now. That's what's going on. And you, I, I, if if anybody else has explained it this way, please let me know who it is because I want I want to know about their source. I think independent media, alternative media, corporate media, mainstream media, you name it. No one has broken it down for you the way I just did because it's nobody's best interest to explain it to you this way. Because I know I'm going to hear from people that are going to hate on me now, because you're going to act like I'm pro-tax, which is retarded. I'm going to hear from people now that are like, "You should be supporting the president's bill because it's good for America," and you don't understand. No, you don't understand. I'm not even saying it's all bad for America. In some areas, it's good. In the end, I will probably pay slightly less taxes, even though they will take away some of my deductions because my overall tax rate will decline, and because I'm good at making my own deductions. Which is another thing you know. Rich people, we make our own deductions. We're good at it. They're not going to simply they're going to simplify the tax code to where you can do it with a postcard. We'll remove all the simple, easy deductions that everybody takes on a 1040A. And sure, you can do that. That's not like it's good for you. It's not good for you that they did that. Are you retarded? Yes, you are. If you think that's good for you, I want to file my tax on a postcard every time. My CPA charges me an extra fifty bucks for another form that they fill out. I save thousands of dollars. Do you think I want a freaking postcard to do my taxes on? And I ain't rich. I'm just upper income middle class. There's people out there programming computers that make more money than me. But I run a business and I know how to work the system because the tax code is like twelve, sixteen hundred pages. And about five of it are what you have to do, and the rest is how you get out of it. And if you think they're going to change that, they'll change it for you, Mister and Missus Middle America that make seventy-five grand a piece, one hundred fifty grand for total household income, with no business. You're both paid. You're going to tax your health insurance now. You know all of that stuff. They'll do you a favor. They'll they'll lower your income tax by a few points. They'll take away those deductions of the evil rich and a few of yours. They'll give you a postcard to fill out. And what about in ten years when just through simple inflation, 
you guys are making 300 instead of 150, but 300 only buys then what 150 bought today, and you're in a brand new happy tax bracket that used to belong to the rich with your postcard. They're fixing to rape you, and you're going to thank them for it. I know most of you in the audience now won't, but the, the average American is going to think this is great. I got $1,300 extra to that game. Yeah, okay. Okay. So you have in five years. And did you really? Did you really get $1,300 extra? Or did they move the shells around as to where you're paying the money in? Do you really have extra money? And how the hell are we going to pay create a huge corporate tax cut and spur the economy when corporate taxes are only 9% of government revenue. And ask yourself, how the hell do we live in a society with one of the highest corporate tax rates in the world? Highest in the world. I think there's no country with a higher top tax bracket for corporations than us, 395 is the highest number in the brackets. And the most prosperous nation in the world, with the most prosperous companies in the world, and corporations pay 9% of our tax. If you doubt me, there's a link in the show notes. You can look it up for yourself. You are entitled to your opinion. You are not entitled to your own facts. In the words of Daniel Patrick Monaghan, you're not entitled to your own facts. This is a fact. That's what the corporations pay. So you tell me how how we really are going to spur Apple to hire more people or Amazon to hire more people by cutting taxes they already don't effing pay. But just be continue to be easily led, America. And all of the people that are opposed to this tax plan, all the reasons they're opposed to it are just as invalid as all the reasons the people on the right are for it. No one in the mainstream gets anything about what I just said. It's a tax cut for the rich. It's not a tax cut for the rich. If I have Jackco, and it's a corporation, INC, a C-Corp, you cut my corporate tax rate, when I take money out, when I pay myself a salary, when I take a dividend, on all that shit, I pay the same tax as before. Is the top, the top income tax bracket doesn't go down at all. Did you know that? No, because the TV didn't tell you. Well, now you know. As we get ready to sign off today, I want to remind you, if you like this show and you feel that the education and the entertainment that you get here are worth uh, supporting, an easy way to do that that's completely painless, that won't cost you any money at all, is simply whenever you're going to shop online, go to tspaz.com first. Cruise on over to Amazon from there and see if you can find what you're looking for on Amazon. Usually it's a great price. It's usually one of the best prices you can find online. Usually you can get it with free shipping if you're a Prime member, and you were going to do it anyway, so you help support the show. Also take a look at the items that we review uh, as an Amazon affiliate. And the item that we have for you for review today is the Furminator de-shedding tool. Now, this is a brush for your dog. And you might think... How big of a damn deal could this be, Jack, a, a brush or a comb for my dog? There are very few products that I put up on uh, the item of the day that I would say are life-changing. But if you own a dog that sheds a lot in your house, this is one of them. Uh, when you get done with a really sheddable dog <clears throat> with this, it looks like you sheared a sheep the way it takes undercoat out. It, it works better than anything else out there. For a lot of years, I've been using um, kind of like uh, aftermarket products, clones of this thing, because... Furminator was the best thing ever built for de-shedding a dog, but they priced it like they made it out of freaking sterling silver and gold or something. 
Um, I mean, like a small one was like 30 bucks. And the, the biggest one was like 55, 60 bucks. Well, a bunch of different aftermarket, especially with the dawning of the internet and all, and Amazon becoming a thing and all, a, a lot of different companies started making versions of this. Not quite as good, but pretty good. And that drove the price down. And Furminator eventually faced reality and brought their products into a price that makes sense. And now for some reason, the long, it's the short-haired giant model still 45 bucks. It's just stupid. But most of them run from about $10 to $14 now. And even the giant long hair model is like $17, bucks, which is worth it. But the large is good enough for everybody, and the large and down are $14 and down. What does this thing do? It removes the undercoat from your dog and or your cat. And they have cat-specific ones, but I think the cat-specific ones are like the small dog ones in a different color. Seriously, I think it's all it's marketing, right? No, that's just marketing. Um, when I first got this, I had a Siberian Husky named Lakota. And this dog shed to where we vacuumed the house every day, and we got like a full thing of the vacuum. And we took him to the vet, and we were lamenting this, and is there anything we can do to reduce his shedding at all? She said, let me show you this thing. So she pulls out a Furminator, and she hit him with it for about two minutes. And it was like you could have made a pillow from the hair that came off this dog. And when she sold us one, it was like $60, because it was like already overpriced, plus the local vet markup, right? Um We were sold on it. We started using the aftermarket ones. And like I said, now they've come down in price. We've backed the Furminator. One of the big advantages Furminator has that no one else does, and it's part of their patent, they have a little thing that, like, when you get a lot of hair in the comb, you push it, the hair falls out. It makes it very easy to remove, and that's the way to use this thing. I have a write-up on it. I have a photo of a lady from Amazon, just a random review, of her German Shepherd and a pile of hair in front of him. And I have an old video from a few years ago of a bunch of different dogs and cats being brushed with this thing. Whatever you think you know about getting shedding hairs off of a dog, if you've not used this, you don't know what's possible. It has, it, they pay themselves back at how much longer a vacuum lasts. I'll put it that way. Um, I love my animals, but I don't love that they shed hair everywhere. Uh, this is the one to get, and uh, every professional groomer I know recommends it and has for a long time. And I give you guidance, like how to figure out what size and what, what tooth size to get in the article today at tspaz.com. Um, if you have a dog like, you know, a German Shepherd, a Husky, any kind of a long-haired, you know, chow, what have you, you owe it to yourself to check this thing out and get one of them. It will improve the quality of a life in your home. And boy, I'm still struggling to get through um, these episodes with my throat this year, man. This one's been rough. I think coming down with a flu or cold or whatever it was a week before the workshop and then almost being recovered and then having to do five days of that just really put the beating on me. Uh, I do want to tell you some stuff about today's final song. It's a song I've definitely played before. It's certainly one that preppers like. It's called The End of the World as We Know It by R.E.M. Um, here's some stuff from songfacts.com on it. Explaining this song to Q Magazine in 1992, lead singer Michael Stripe said, The words come from everywhere. I'm extremely aware of everything around me. Whether I'm in a sleeping state, awake, dream state, or just day-to-day -day life, there's a part in it, it's the end of the world as we know it, that came from a dream where I was at Lester Bang's birthday party, and I was the only person there whose initials were not LB. So there was Lenny Bruce, Lenoid Brezhnev, Leonard Bernstein, so that ended up in the song along with a lot of stuff I'd see when I was flipping TV channels. It's a collection of streams of consciousness. Then, of course, he's talking about the line, Lenny Bruce is not afraid. 
Um, so this song is about the type of thing that it sounds like it's about, like major disaster, catastrophe, the, the angst of living in the modern world. It, it, it's, it's really interesting to me, though, that when R.E.M. first started playing this live, the audience reacted with a party vibe, and that threw the band off. They thought the apocalyptic lyrics would create a more subdued response, but people were like, yeah, it's the end of the world. And I think there's a fatalism, in, especially the young that listen to music like this. Uh, not that old people don't listen to R.E.M. Of course, we were young when, when they were making this music you know, the first time around. That's why we're still listening to it, probably. But you can remember being that, kind of that young person I was talking about yesterday that was just not afraid of anything. So yeah, we'll party. It's 1999 or whatever, right? Prince, right? But Over the years, this song has evolved for me as I've become more sophisticated in my understanding of the world. And as I've said, even if the author of a song means one thing, it's subject to interpretation by anybody that interprets art. Because that's what music is, it's art. And what I've come to realize is it's the end of the world as we know it every day. Every day, something new comes into the world that destroys something that has always been seen as necessary. At one time, kings and queens were seen as necessary. There's little changes daily, right? But I'm giving you some big ones, some big examples. When, when, when nations were able to rise without emperors and queens and kings, it was the end of the world as we knew it. There was a time when you couldn't get anywhere over any distance without a horse or a team of oxen or something like that. The internal combustion engine came. It was the end of the world as we knew it. There was a time when flight was for birds. But thanks to Orville and Wilbur Wright, it was the end of the world as we knew it. There was a time when all we could do was look at the stars and the moon and the planets. And in 1969, with one small step for mankind, or one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind, it was the end of the world as we knew it. There was a time when to listen to music, we had to take a disc, either vinyl or silicon, or a, a tape, plug it in to listen to it. And with digital music, it was the end of the world as we knew it. There was a time when if you wanted to amass a great amount of knowledge in your home, you had to spend a thousand dollars or more for a set of encyclopedias. Then the internet came and made that set of encyclopedias look like a joke. It was the end of the world as we knew it. Right now, they're developing cars that will make us obsolete as drivers within 15 to 20 years. It is the end of the world as we know it. And there's good and bad in all of these things. And there's some, like all of the things I just gave you actually advance society forward. There's some pretty bad things that change the world forever. For instance, the Holocaust. The wars in the Middle East. And every day... Not only on the macro level is it the end of the world as we know it. For individuals all over the place, it's the end of the world as they know it. A person they always thought would be there. The person they were sure would outlive them and be there for them as a friend or a family member, a loved one, dies. And it's the end of the world as they know it. The job they thought they would never lose is gone. And it's the end of the world as they know it. See, that word, that phrase does not mean what we have made it mean in prepper fiction where the whole world is destroyed it's a rebirth 
And sometimes that's painful, individually or collectively. But it's why I've always considered this a party song. In the end, as long as I'm still breathing, as long as I'm still here, as long as I can fog a mirror, I'll accept that it's the end of the world as I know it. But I'm just interested in what new world I can create that day. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Bye.